Why I think it's a mistake, we're leaving the book of James. There's one more teaching in the book of James to finish the book. We're leaving the book of James just because I, I um, and I don't say this very often, and I don't say it lightly because I think, I think preachers use it way too often just for dramatic effect. But I think, I might be wrong, I think it's a subject that God was dealing with my heart about. And I felt like I needed to right away deal with it. Why I think it's a mistake to assume the New Testament doesn't require local church membership. Why I think it's a mistake to assume the New Testament doesn't require local church membership. We just read the text, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 20. The important word in that title is why I think it's a mistake to assume. Because I think that's the general assumption. I think that's the general assumption that probably 80% of evangelical Christians hold. I just wanted to share with you how my thinking has changed on this point. Um, this isn't one of those sermons where you have to agree with me to get into heaven. You only have to agree with me if you want to be correct when you go to heaven. <laughs> I wanted to share with you how my thinking has changed on this subject and try and show you why. I've always encouraged Christians to become members of Cedarview Community Church. And there's been no change in my assessment of the value of specific local church membership. It's always made sense to me. I've always pictured it as being good and important. But a change has come in my thinking. It took a little while. It took a little while because I don't think it's popular to say what I'm going to say. Here's where the change has gradually come. And I, I think this teaching will come as a new idea to many, maybe most of you. You can assess it scripturally. But I no longer feel that church membership is something simply to be encouraged. I think you would expect that from me. Let's face it, I've been pastoring this local church for some 33 years. So no one's going to uh, consider me an unbiased voice pushing for church membership. I want to put this question to you. What if local church membership, however that covenant gets expressed, different ways in different churches, certainly in different denominations, so however that covenant gets expressed, what if local church membership isn't just something encouraged? What if it's something the New Testament actually expects. I said, what if? What if it is? I think we all know the difference between encouraging and expecting. Who among you would be happy with me if I stood up here and said I was encouraging married Christians not to sleep with each other's spouses? To merely encourage marital faithfulness certainly falls short of recognizing the importance of marital faithfulness. That's because marital faithfulness isn't just encouraged in the New Testament, it's expected in the New Testament. 
And immediately, I think we can all see the problem applying this logic to church membership. Look at most churches. Look at our church. Look at Cedar View Community Church. And local, specific church membership doesn't seem to be all that important. We encourage it. But it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Everyone can come regularly. Everyone can sing the songs. Everyone can pray. Everyone can worship. Everyone can partake of the Lord's table. All of the kids can be cared for in the nursery and children's ministries, whether you're a member of this church or not. All can give offerings. All can support missions. All who come here regularly can be married and buried and have their children dedicated as much as humanly possible. All will be visited when sick and encouraged when facing trials. So aside from building a new church building or inviting a new pastor, local church membership doesn't seem to make very much difference at all. How can that kind of church membership be important? How can it be expected? And here's where I've come to land on this issue. In spite of how open and inclusive we try to be, I have come to believe that local church membership is important because, because, not the PAOC, but the New Testament makes it important. In other words, I no longer encourage local church membership as a pragmatic issue, and there are pragmatic benefits to local church membership. I've come to see local church membership in whatever form that gets expressed in different churches and denominations. I've come to see it as a New Testament issue. And that's quite a statement to make. And I'm going to do something that I have never done before. I'm going to consider four reasons local church membership is expected, I think, indeed, assumed in the New Testament. And I need to repeat, I'm not talking about being members of the body of Christ, a Christian. I'm talking about specific, localized church membership. I believe the New Testament recognizes and teaches two kinds of church membership. And even more than that, what I'm going to argue this morning is, I believe each one assumes the other. So, four textual reasons for assuming local church membership. Point number one. When Paul talks about the different placements of believers as members of the body, he isn't talking about the universal church. This observation isn't original to me, but I'm amazed how often Paul's words about the local church get quoted and applied in the context of the universal, invisible church. In other words, and here's the fresh point of truth for me. When we talk about the relationship of each individual of this congregation to Cedarview Community Church... The most proper New Testament term is membership. 
It's, it's the New Testament terminology. It's not church politics. It's the way the New Testament describes it. Here's what I want to do. I think this all becomes clearer when we compare the two kinds of uh, description of the body of Christ in the New Testament. Paul talks about the universal church. You're saved. You're part of this body of believers. There are billions of us. He talks about this universal church in two important texts. And he talks about a local church in one. Here are Paul's descriptions of the universal church with Christ as its head. And I'm going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, 11 to 16. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up, and here's that phrase, the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, and here's the phrase, we are to grow up in every way into him. Who's that? Who is the head into Christ? So he tells us. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea there, there's this body, okay, Christians are a part of it. Christ is the head. Just, just that much for now. Here's the second text that talks about the universal body of Christ. It's Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God. Who's that? That's Jesus. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, he is the, here's the same thing Paul said in our Ephesians text. He's the head of the body. There it is, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm only magnifying one dominant point from these two really gigantic texts. Christ is the head of his body. 
Christ is the head of the redeemed, the universal church. The texts are both emphatic. There is no other Lord. There is no other Redeemer. The whole church belongs to Christ. It is His, and it is His alone. He bought this bride with His own shed blood. The point of saying Christ is the head surely magnifies this idea. There is no getting into this body except through Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of being born into a Christian home. That won't get you into the body of Christ. It's not a matter of coming to church, singing in the choir, preaching sermons. That won't get you into the body of Christ. It's not a matter of being born in a Christian country. It is knowing Christ. He's the head of the body. You, there's no getting in but by him. And if I'm going to claim to be a Christian at all, it means he directs my life in the same way that my brain directs the movements of my fingers. So self-rule is logically impossible if we're in the body and Christ is the head. That's Paul's point. Now, as precious and central this truth is, it is not the theme of Paul's words about the body in our opening text, 1 Corinthians 12, 20. Paul, balancing his words in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1, is describing another body, or, or more precisely, a different and essential expression of that invisible body of Christ. And significantly, he's using the very same image of a body, and he's using it on purpose to point to what that glorious body with Christ as its head, what it will look like and how it will function in a place like Corinth or Ephesus, or Newmarket, or Toronto. The difference in this 1 Corinthians text, whether you agree with everything I'm saying or not, the difference in this 1 Corinthians text isn't imaginary. I'm not making it up. It's not something forced on the text. It is clearly a difference Paul intended to make in some way. And the key difference is, in Ephesians and Colossians, the head of the entire body is Christ. The location of the rest of the parts isn't spelled out because that's not his emphasis. That's not the important point. We are all the body. Christ is the head. Again, we get into this body only through Christ and he is Lord. That's the only point. We all get spiritually born into the same church, whether Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, young, old. There's only one way into the church. Redemption. Peace through the blood of his cross. It's accomplished by Christ's death. It's applied by the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's picture of this worldwide universal church with Christ as the head. Now, just look at the 1 Corinthians 12 passage. The head of Paul's body is very different. It is Christ. 
I'm not making it up. All the body parts, including the head parts, all the parts are members of the congregation. Paul makes it clear that the eyes and the ears, head parts, along with the feet and the hands, they're all references to the role of individuals in a local church body. In this case, it's the local church at Corinth. Unlike the universal body described in Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, Paul's writing to a church you could walk into. You can't see the body of Christ he talked about in Colossians 1 or Ephesians 4. The one he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, you could go there. You could find out when the services are. You could meet the people. People you could count. People you could see a specific place on a map. Those specific people in Corinth are the members of that body of people. Just as surely as they are members of the universal body of Christ. And, and that's why they are called members in both bodies. Whether it's Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, members of the body of Christ, or whether it's 1 Corinthians 12, where the parts are delineated and roles spelled out, they're still called members of a body. Members of a body, members of a body. The exact same terms, the exact same analogy, the exact same words used. And there's a reason they're called members of both bodies. Paul's still talking about membership. That's his word. Paul's point is these individual people are tied to this specific local congregation in a way they aren't tied anywhere else on earth. Not even to another local church. They were attached to one congregation the way a finger is attached to one hand. My finger isn't attached to your hand. Your hand's fine. It's not as nice as mine, but, but it's fine. But my finger isn't attached to your hand. My finger is attached to, to my hand. It's attached to this specific body. So the parts, they're members. They're attached to a specific body. So in other words, the membership Paul is describing in this local congregation at Corinth is a specific attachment to one congregation. Uh, uh, a hand can't be attached to three different bodies. Now all those points have powerful, and I think, personal application. Once we remember, Paul isn't talking about the universal church in 1 Corinthians 12. And I think there are textual reasons. I've shared them. I think there are textual reasons for assuming a difference between Colossians 1, Ephesians 4, and 1 Corinthians 12. It's not an artificial difference. It's, it's in the words of the text. Local church membership starts to have deep traction and implication. You become a member of one church in a way you aren't a member of any other church. And then I started to honestly ask the question, if Paul isn't referring to the universal church in 1 Corinthians 12, and I think there are textual reasons for assuming he isn't, 
Why does he use the very same image of a body? Why doesn't he come up with a different term altogether? Why not avoid confusion? And the only satisfactory answer for me is, Paul wanted to make it as plain as he could that to be a member of the universal church was to be a member of a local church. That is, in the New Testament, these two memberships aren't two separate things. Both matter, both carry weight, both are expressions of the very same attachment to Christ. In other words, concrete, specific membership in one local church is the New Testament way membership in the universal church has any functional reality in this world. Local church membership matters as much as membership in the universal body of Christ. That's why Paul uses the very same metaphor of a body and the very same term, member. He uses it. It's not our term, it's his. To define and recognize their identity. Okay, the next question is, it's cute, Pastor Don, Does this interpretation hold up? Does it make sense with other passages dealing with local congregations and how they function in the New Testament? Can you make this stick? My personal conviction, all right, my personal conviction is that this fits the New Testament teaching as no other interpretation of membership does. Now, here's my thesis for the rest of this teaching time. I know this is a little different. I'm arguing, I'm arguing, it is impossible to do what the local New Testament congregation is called to do. It is impossible to do it. Apart from specific, recognizable local church membership. That's what I want to say in the rest of this message. Are you all still awake? Point number two. Consider the issue of Jesus commanded church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17. Nobody reads these verses much until they're mad about something. If your brother sins against you, and by the way, please note that word sins. This is not somebody did something you didn't like. This is somebody sinning against you. They're not sinning against you if, if uh, they take your parking spot. They're sinning against you if they sleep with your wife. So it's not just someone who irritates you. Somebody's breaking a command here. Okay? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them. And then here's this phrase. Perplexing phrase. Tell Tell it to the church. Now, say what you want. This is not the universal church. Are we agreed? There's no way you can tell every Christian on the planet. 
And if he refuses, and there's, there's these consequences, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile a pagan, a tax collector. I'm sorry if you're an accountant or, you know, something like that. These verses, obviously, they've given the church headaches for generations, and interpretations abound. But, but there's one nagging question that almost never gets lost, never gets asked, and, and gets lost in all the quarreling. Here's my question to you. How shall we define the group that will finally pass judgment on this unrepentant sinner? Tell it to the church. And if he won't listen to the church, let him be like a pagan to you. 17. Seriously, by, by what standard are we going to say regarding this, this group with such, with such heavy, final, binding, arbitrary power... How are we going to say, you, you can be involved in issuing this verdict, and you can't be involved in issuing this verdict. You are in this official group. You are out of this official group. You are qualified to make this judgment on this unrepentant brother, and you, you are not qualified to pass judgment on this unrepentant brother. How are we going to do that? I mean, the outcome... It seems to be fairly serious, wouldn't you say? Let him be to you as a pagan and a tax collector, 17. This is not some trivial matter. This is life-changing for this person. The local church is about to write this unrepentant sinner off as a pagan. They're doing it at Jesus' command. So, who's going to make this final call? Will we put up a slide? Uh, Judgment meeting, Thursday night. Coffee in the gym, all welcome. How are we going to do it? Anyone who has ever darkened the door of an assembly? Visitors who don't even know this guy's name? What about people that came twice in the last year? And if you're going to exclude some from this final arbitration, on what grounds are you going to exclude them? Do you see what I'm asking here? There's no longer any doubt in my mind that some form, however confessed or signed or processed, but in some form, in some way, there's a a, a form of local church membership that is just flatly assumed in this assignment from Jesus to the local church. It can't be done otherwise. They knew who was in their church, and they knew who was not in their church. In other words, please consider this. They knew who was merely a believer, a member in Christ's universal church, And who was a member of their local congregation? They knew the difference. 
and their whole assignment from Jesus, to my mind, their whole assignment from Jesus only makes sense based on that important distinction. They knew how to work that out. Point number three. Consider the issue, and this this is sort of the same, I admit, but slightly different. You'll see in a minute. Consider the issue of recognizing who is a part of the local church and who isn't. The text here is 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That's an interesting word, isn't it? How'd that happen? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. That's a strange thing to say. Worldly, uh, wicked, I could see, but arrogant. You know what I think that means? I can't prove this. Arrogant, proud, boastful. We're, you know what? We, it's not up to us to tell people how to live. We're tolerant in our church. We're here to build people up. We're not here to condemn. They're proud of that. Ought you not rather to mourn? These people should cry. Now, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Whenever you deal with the New Testament instruction regarding excommunication from the local church, the issue of specific church membership is on the table. Let him be removed. Verse 2, from among you. And, and the two issues that just can't easily be dodged unless you just refuse to look at it. The two issues that can't easily be dodged are these. In any local congregation, who does the local church have the right to judge and remove? Who do we have the right to judge and remove? And secondly, in what sense is such a removal from the rest of the congregation going to be accomplished and recognized? In other words, in what sense is this person outside the rest of the congregation? Those aren't light questions. Just, just imagine you're a visitor. Maybe you are. Here you sit this morning. You're at Cedarview Community Church. This is your first time in the building. No one knows your background. No one knows your name. No one knows whether you're a believer or just here at the service. You've never been here before. Can the rest of us inspect your life and see where you're at morally and how you're living? What internet sites you've been on, who you slept with? Can the rest of us inspect your life and tell you, you're out? You're removed from the rest of us. And you'd sit and say, out? What are you talking about? I'm not even in. You can't put me out. How does that work? And then there's that second question. In what sense are they put out of the church? It's a free country. I mean, 
if they aren't a physical threat, you, you can't keep them out of the building. Anybody can come here. Are you going to rush down the aisle, summon usher in the middle of a communion service and say, no, 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 you can't take that. You're not following Jesus. I simply see no way for the local church to obey this huge block of New Testament instruction about removing the disqualified apart from some kind, however it gets expressed, some kind of visible Commonly recognized and affirmed local church membership that can be taken away as a physical sign of the spiritual reality of being cut off from the grace of Christ that grows and flourishes in a local body of believers. Four. Consider the issue of accountability in ministry in the local church. This too is no slight issue. People change churches a lot in today's world. People change churches like they change shopping malls. Where do the lines of ministry responsibility fall, and how can they be measured if we're going to use the New Testament rather than just whim or emotion or sentiment? By that I mean to address two vitally important God-given assignments. Remember I said at the beginning, I said... I've come to the conclusion that it's impossible to do what the New Testament calls the church to do without some form of recognized local church membership. That was my point. I said I want to see if it stood up. So the New Testament gives two important God-given assignments that are, that are in great danger of becoming virtually unrecognizable in today's church. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, pastors, to care for the church of God. What does that mean? which he obtained with his own blood. I want to look at that text, and I want to look at another one. And this is the last text we'll study. Hebrews 13, 7. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, that would be no advantage to you. So there are two assignments. I'm going to try and wrap up. We've got to go. There are two assignments in those two texts. The Acts 20 text spells out the New Testament assignment to pastors. The Hebrews 13 text spells out the assignment of congregations. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And then returns, like Acts 20, returns to the assignment of pastors saying they will have to give an account. I have to give an account. I have to stand before Jesus and give an account of what I did here in Newmarket. Now, how will we be obedient to these texts? 
without local church membership? How will we be obedient to these texts? First, how will pastors measure for whom they are responsible? You might not care, but it matters to me because the text says I'm going to be accountable for this. So I care a lot about what this means. For whom am I responsible? I'm pretty good friends with Pastor Keith at, at the Asian Court. We get together a lot. We share a lot. Am I, am I responsible for all the people who attend Asian Court Pentecostal Church on Sunday? Will I have to answer to that? To Jesus? Please, somebody tell me. No, thank you. Are they a part of the flock or the church of God? Both terms are right in the text. I'm not making them up. Are, are, are they a part of the group for whom I must answer? And if not, we all agreed. Well, what about people who come to this church for a little while but now go to a different church? Am I responsible for them? And are they still to submit, like the Hebrews text says, are they still to submit to me as their pastor, even though now they have another pastor? That makes no sense at all. And what about visitors? What about people who are here one Sunday and they leave quickly after church and they never come back? I don't even know their names. Are they a part of the flock for whom I must answer to God? I hope not. And what about people who come to this church and another church and another church and rotate two or three different churches at the same time? Am I responsible for them? Do I have to answer for them? Where are they functioning in a submitted fashion as described in Hebrews 13? How does that work? Are we going to just throw these verses out and say they're just relics from another age? My argument is, these are still precious texts. They still apply. They still matter. They made perfect sense in the context of New Testament local congregations where Paul's concept of members, attached members to one body, was clearly recognized, practiced, and understood. A finger had no identity as a detached piece of flesh. If you go to Swiss Chalet after Christian Ed and you're having your chicken soup and my index finger is floating in the bottom of that soup bowl... It, it has, it, you might not forget it, but it has no real significance unless it's on my hand. And you can't take it and try and attach it to three different hands. Some form of specific, identifiable local church membership, I believe, is constantly taught, named, the terms are used, and it's assumed in the whole New Testament. 
and the commands given to the church by Jesus and the apostles, the commands given to the church are unperformable apart from specific local church membership. I've never understood the fear of local church membership. Well, Pastor Don, I've seen a lot of scary things in local churches, and I just don't want anything to do with that stuff anymore. I get that. I get that. Me too. In fact, come by my office. You don't know half the scary things that go on even in this church. Some weeks there are just more problems than you can shake a stick at. Come to view church membership like I view marriage. I've seen a lot of scary things in a lot of marriages. But that didn't make me just decide to move in and live with Rini. Marriage, you kidding me? I've seen marriage, no thanks. Marriage is right and good in spite of all the abuses, and so is the church. I hope, I hope we all believe at a gut level that Jesus didn't just die on the cross and shed his blood for some vague, invisible, big, universal church. I hope we believe that he died and shed his blood, along with all the other churches, for Cedarview Community Church. He loves this church. This one. Look around you. This one. Jesus loves it. He loves it with all of its flaws and all of its faults. He gave his life for Cedarview Community Church. And anything that the New Testament endorses, like I've been arguing it endorses local church membership, it has to be good for all of us. Just pray about it. Let's pray.